0: I encourage you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 44 as we continue on. In the book of Genesis, we have been looking, obviously, at the work that God was doing in bringing his people into Egypt, bringing them out of Canaan at a time of famine and into a land where there was a surplus of food. That is Egypt. And there, it was God's intention, we know, from having read the rest of the Bible, to build them into a mighty nation. To take them from a relatively small family, 12 brothers, and uh, millions. And then to lead them into the very land that he had promised them long ago. He had promised their father, Abraham, that the land that he lived in as a sojourner with just his wife at one point, they would, uh, they would inherit And that uh, someday they would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and not the Fayetteville sky, the the sky without light pollution, where you you can't number the stars. So, um, and that day would be coming. But uh, this is the process, obviously, that God used to bring them in, and also to do that wonderful, refining work that he does in the lives of his people. But we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Let's now go to the Lord, who has given us this word, and let's ask for his help and understanding. Sovereign Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word. We know, O Lord, that often it's the case that when the seed is falling, it falls upon hard-packed dirt, that dirt that Christ described as the the clay of the the pathway uh, where no, no seed can grow, where the birds come and they snatch it away. In other places, we come into your presence. Our hearts are absolutely beset and troubled by all manner of different things. So the seed may grow for a little while, but it's choked out by our worries. Of course, there's rocky soil when we have hardened hearts, Lord, and where the word can't get any root. We pray that we would not be any of those kinds of soils, though, Lord. We pray that your law would break up our hearts, Lord, and that uh, the good soil would be exposed and prepared to receive it. We pray, Lord, that you would do that work of implanting your word within us and causing it to grow and produce a harvest so that we would be profitable to you, Lord. We know that even after the best we've done, we are yet unprofitable servants, but we pray, Lord, that we would be used in your service, Lord, bringing in the sheaves. And I pray, Lord, now all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I'm going to be taking a look, as I said, at Genesis 44. I'll be taking it up where we left off. Uh, At verse 18, I remind you, this is the word of the Lord, inerrant, inspired, and infallible. Then Judah came near to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant. For you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked the servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord, and our father said, Go back and buy us a little food. But we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying... If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord. And let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's interesting, when we read the biblical account in Acts, we often uh, see that the very people who were seeing miracles were at times a little skeptical about whether or not uh, the greatest miracle, that of redemption and change from evil to good could actually take place. There's one example, of course, one one great example where the disciples of Christ certainly didn't think that redemption could take place. Uh, And it uh, concerned a man who was well known for his great evil against the church. He had assisted in the stoning of the first martyr of the New Testament church, Stephen. He had opposed the church root and branch, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, as Luke records. And by his own confession, many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And the first disciple who was actually sent to that man actually thought the Lord himself had made a mistake. Couldn't be possible that you're sending me to this man to baptize him. And so that man spoke back to the Lord. Never a good idea, incidentally, when the Lord speaks to you. Uh, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Can't be this guy. Who was it that I'm talking about? Paul. At this time, though, he's not Paul. He's Saul. Saul the Pharisee. So it's not surprising that when Paul went to Jerusalem and he tried to join the uh, the Pharisees, when he had already joined the Pharisees, he was trying to be free of them. Uh, When he tried to join the disciples that we read, they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But what happened? Well, a man by the name of Barnabas, the son of compassion, took him. And brought him to the disciples and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out as Acts chapter 9 verses 27 and 28 tell us it took the compassion and the love of another man who had seen actually the Lord's redeeming work in him to... Bring him to the rest and say, yes, the work that only God can do in a person has actually taken place in him. I have seen the fruits and evidences of it. It is a remarkable thing, brothers and sisters, when the Lord does that work, changing a man's heart changing his desires, changing the very way that he thinks about things, the way that he reacts to people in such a profound way. Sometimes we don't even believe that it's possible with some people. I dare say if you had met me in my teenage years, you would have unhesitatingly declared least likely to become a Christian pastor. There would have been no possibility. My wife is now nodding her head vigorously. Yes, there was nobody. Nobody I knew who ever thought that that was the destiny that God had plotted out for me, and yet he had. It is a remarkable thing that the Lord does. We live in an age, don't we, when the entire church is looking for modern-day miracles, and they puff themselves up, and they look for these things that are very showy, things like tongues and miraculous healings and words of knowledge and stuff like that. When, in fact, the greatest miracle that the Lord can do has continued to occur in the church through the preaching of the word, through something as simple as that. And that is the changing of a heart, the bringing of somebody from spiritual death to spiritual life, an utter change in inclinations, in loves, in desires, and, of course, eternal destiny. The granting of immortality is going on around us, and yet we say, not enough. We need to see other things. And then sadly, to this day, we are still sometimes skeptical when it does actually occur. It is uncommon, but we need to remember that our God is a God of the uncommon. He is the one who does those things that are not possible for men. To see, though, somebody go through that process is often painful to watch because often it involves obviously a breaking down. And sometimes it's the case that when uh, we have somebody in the, within the covenant family who has either never really come to the Lord or who has backslidden gravely from where they are, the process of watching them broken down and reformed is often difficult to watch as somebody is humbled for their sins and then they are built up again. But the Lord does that, and he does it for our good. We discussed that at length the last time I preached on, on uh, chapter 44. Uh, so I will not go back over it again. But um, it is the case that the Lord, in making his chosen instruments, often does it in a way that we would call cruel in his methodology. I told you last week about how when I first started reading the Bible and I, I read what Joseph had done with his brothers, I was like, How cruel? How cool to do that to your brethren. And yet now I see the wisdom in it. And more importantly than that, I see God's hand behind it in the way that he was working and using these processes. And we see the way, at least I hope you see the way, in what we just read, in how it worked in his brother's lives. And how it worked in the life of Judah. You remember, we've been reading through Genesis, so Judah is not a stranger to us. We remember what he and his brothers had been up to prior to this moment in time. We remember how Judah, in particular, went from one of the most wretched of the brothers, who were pretty wretched, generally speaking. He was the man, of course, who had suggested that they sell Joseph into slavery. He was a man who had lied to his father and caused him terrible grief. We remember Judah had married a Canaanite and then gone on to marry his own sons, Two Canaanites, marrying them outside of the the covenant family. He went up to Canaanite religious feasts. He slept with prostitutes. He met on the road. This is not exactly what you would expect to be the founder of the line from which Jesus would come, would you? And yet that is exactly who he was. He defrauded his daughter-in-law and then initially planned to have her burned to death for getting pregnant until he discovered he was the father. (laughs) And then everything changed. This is a man who did not exactly have what we would call a sanctified background prior to this. And yet, looking at this, what changes have occurred in him? How different his attitude is. How different his desires are. How different his speech is. This man now is standing up manfully and he is interceding passionately for his brother, Benjamin, and think about who he is interceding for. Judah, of course, was a son of Leah. Leah and Rachel were at each other's throats throughout the time of their marriage to Jacob. They never got along. And so the the brothers, they, they tended to not like the brothers from the other women, or at least get along with them. There was a favoritism that applied Benjamin also was the youngest of the sons. And as I said, the son of his mother's greatest rival, Rachel. And yet he stands up and he intercedes for him. And I believe this is actually the longest single speech in Genesis. And here it is, Judah interceding for Benjamin. Judah passionately stands up and he portrays the sorrow of his father. And how if he were to return home without Benjamin, surely, he says, the shock Would kill him. He says to this man, he doesn't know it's his brother Joseph, he thinks he's simply the prime minister of Egypt. He says, his life is bound up in the lad's life. And remember that what Judah is doing, he's not just standing up and saying, have mercy. And please do this for us. He's saying rather, he actually says in verse 33, now therefore please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. No, let Benjamin return. I will stay and remain in perpetuity a slave to you. My life for his freedom. Please, He begs him to take this offer. Here we have the man who had watched his father, remember this grieving for years, grieving over Joseph saying, my heart would break to see the evil that would come upon my father if I went back without Benjamin. He's finally struck with a sense of of real pity for his father. What's happened? Well, he's been given a great gift a wonderful gift, a, a gift I hope you, you guys all have. What is that gift? It's the gift of a tender conscience, a conscience that is not only empathetic towards others, but is genuinely sorrowful at the idea of grieving others or being the cause of sin in the lives of others. This is a very different man, and this is, a, this is a wonderful appeal he makes. Derek Kidner, a commentator, says of it, this noble appeal does not rely only on pathos. It has the cumulative weight of factual reminder, graphic portraiture, and a selfless concern proved to the hilt in the plea not for mercy but for leave to suffer vicariously. In its spirit, it bears comparison with the intercession of Moses. We remember how in Exodus, Moses... Said to the Lord, in essence, if you're going to destroy this people, destroy me with them. He intercedes, placing his own, his own self before the Lord. And in doing so, of course, we have a, a prefiguring of Christ's intercession on our behalf. But more about that later. Now, uh, the change that has happened in Judah should not also obscure what's happened to the brothers generally. I want you to see what's happened in their family. that The jealousy and the hatred and the deceit is gone. They're not divided by their parentage any longer. Uh, They're not attacking one another. They're not taking advantage of one another. No longer are they lying about their sins and blaming others, and they are now actually willing to sacrifice for one another. They've become the model of what today we would call a blended Christian family. They've gone from, from being one of the most dysfunctional families in the, in the Bible to a family that is, is showing genuine love and compassion and pity for one another. A willingness to intercede, a willingness to do what's hard. In fact, what's, what's absolutely difficult for one another. Now, uh, what we should also see in this is a picture of what, what the church or the family of God should be like. Should we not love one another like that? We are not related, generally speaking. I mean, not many of us within this room are related by blood. I will, I will give that. We've got examples here and here and so on and throughout where people are genuinely related by blood. But we within the church, within the covenant community, we are related, related by bonds that are even more profound than Blood. We're related through the blood of Christ, brothers and sisters. We're related through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit within us, uniting us to one another. Therefore, when I say, you are my brothers and sisters, I am not kidding. And sad to say, there are many here within this room who have no hope that their actual relatives will spend eternity with them. But I have great hope that I will spend eternity with you. Happily, I will not be preaching to you forever. In heaven... You will have the greatest of preachers addressing you. We will see him face to face, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. But we will enjoy that together because we are part of his family. And we will eat supper together, and it'll be grand. I look forward to that. But we here on earth should begin to resemble what we hope to be in glory, shouldn't we? We should be all one despite our backgrounds, despite... I mean, I was born thousands of miles away from most of you, and yet the Lord brought me here and knit me together with you. We have different backgrounds, but hopefully we all have the same destination. We're all headed to the same place. And should we not love one another and be willing to sacrifice for one another? I want to say this. I have seen some, um, some profound and wonderful examples. Not that I haven't seen them throughout the years within this church I have, I have seen members of this church selflessly giving of themselves to others who could not give anything back to them or who were in no situation to do so, but just this week, I have seen people pouring themselves out on others, loving them because they are their brother or their sister in Christ and desiring good for them, doing whatever they can. That is what should animate us. That should be the spirit that possesses us And we should be transparent with one another. We should not be a people who lie or who obfuscate, who who obscure the truth. We should be open. We should be willing to confess our sins. And when we have a problem with one another, we should be willing to go to one another. I went through the difficult process this week of Matthew 18-ing with somebody. But I must tell you, at the end, it was wonderful to see as, as, as all of the, the gunk and the funk and the fog and the clouds that it were obscuring our relationship were, were lifted. That's, that's a wonderful blessing. It's something that we often do not partake of because we aren't willing to go and to confess and to speak and to ask and to, and to be real, to put it in those terms, with one another. Let us do that. Let us be a family who love, and who are willing to sacrifice for one another. And of course, when we are willing to suffer for one another, we are following after the example of the one who suffered for us, aren't we? In Judah's speech, in his willingness to intercede for his brother Benjamin, he is foreshadowing his greater son, Jesus Christ, who would accomplish by his own substitutionary atonement an offering greater than any of us could ever offer up, a sacrifice more than we could ever hope to offer as the perfect Lamb of God laid down his life as an atonement for our sins and gave us his righteousness that we might be clad in robes of his own weaving as we stand before the Father, that we are members of the family of God is solely due to the working of the Lord within us and through Christ's atonement for us. Now, Going back just briefly to the actual story as it unfolds, it's doubtful that even Joseph would have expected a change of nature as complete as he sees. What was he aiming for? Well, he had intended, obviously, by his plan to secure his younger brother as his guest. Uh, in the place of Simeon and I have no doubt that once Benjamin was with him then he would have cast off his disguise and said uh, Ben it's me your brother Joseph and Benjamin would have been shocked but the other brothers would have returned and I, I sometimes wonder would Joseph have allowed them to return without Benjamin knowing probably what it would have done to his father I, God I don't think was complete in his uh, finished so to speak in his work in Joseph either it was work that had to be yet done and we'll see that Joseph's heart is also uh, broken in the right way by what his brothers say to him in that moment. And we'll see that all of the brothers are enabled to dwell in Egypt. And then Jacob, of course, is able to join them in a little while. I'm sorry, once again, I'm spoiling the story for you. I'm skipping ahead, I do it all the time. But let me make a couple of applications. They are simple, but I think needful. The first is this be patient with God's means of change. I can't say this enough. Be patient. We don't understand. We don't see what the Lord is doing the way the Lord does. The process of God's reshaping somebody and making them into a tool in his own hands, making them into what he intends them to be, is like the process a sculptor uses to produce a masterpiece. Now, let's pretend we were completely unfamiliar with the process of how a sculptor goes about making a a marble statue, okay? Initially, we would see the sculptor with his block of marble, and then we might be confused initially as he begins to mar that piece of, of marble, as he begins to chip large pieces off it. And you might think, well, he's destroying it. There was a certain you know, rough beauty to it and its, its squareness and, you know, its, uh, its uniform sides and now he's cutting into it. He's marring it. And he keeps stopping and restarting the process. There's these, these long, long pauses and then he gets back to work again. But then we would gradually see a figure beginning to take shape. But we would have to remember or know or learn that it isn't done The work is not finished until exactly what the sculptor had in mind comes into being. And brothers and sisters, here's the hard news. God isn't done with that process, generally speaking, in our lives until we enter into glory. It's something that goes on. He is always refining, always making adjustments. But trust that with every blow, God's work in you is being done. That you, if you are his, are being made over again into the image of Christ. And that someday you will be his masterwork. Along those lines, accept not only the process, accept the results and be willing to do so at every stage in the process. This is the harder part. If I were to to take a big clump of muddy clay and place it into your hands, and there it is wet and dripping and getting your hands all dirty and say, this is my masterpiece, this is my special treasure. You would look at me and say, <laughs> Bleh. probably, and drop it on the floor. That's ridiculous. How can something that, that dirty, that shapeless, how can that be your masterpiece? How can that be your special treasure? And yet, that's where God starts, doesn't he? Because I I use the example of a sculptor, but there I'm hearkening to Roman and Greek culture. Uh, Actually, the Bible doesn't use the example of a sculptor. Do you know the example that God uses when he talks about forming us? The example is, of course, the potter. Now, what are we in that? We're not the wheel, and we ain't the potter. Remember that. If you remember anything in your lives, you aren't the potter. That'll put you significantly ahead of most Christians. What are we? We are the clay. We're the raw material. The muddy, dirty gunk that God starts out with before he puts it on the wheel and gets to work. And we might say, how can anything good come from it? But it does. Isaiah 64:3. But now, O Lord, you are the Father, we are the clay, and you are the potter, and all we are the work of your hand. It is not, though, a quick process. It is something that requires painstaking attention and detail, and it gradually occurs. And we may not like the way it looks until the potter is done. It's funny, I've been watching um, uh, kind of at a distance. Uh, Graham is going through a series on uh, Greek history. He's going to be uh, spending the Greeks in his history classes at, uh, at BJU when he goes back, pray for him, uh, just a reminder. Um, and uh, one of the things that they, they talk about is the development of Greek pottery. And how they moved from the archaic period with, uh, with, well, the pictures aren't really that great, to the classical period. And you look at these, these, these pots, and you're like, how on earth did you make that from mud? They are truly their masterworks. They are incredibly beautiful. Today, they sell for millions, and not just based on their, their historical value, but on their, their still their incredible beauty. And yet, all of them started as gunky mud and clay, shaped on a foot-spun wheel, Something amazing the Lord does. So be patient as you watch that process. I made the sculptor reference because it applies to us. But be patient with the potter as he is shaping the clay, the clay that's all around you. And keep in mind that the potter is not working at the same speed with everyone else. It is a process that takes a lifetime. But you will be amazed at the results when they are done. Be willing to accept those who you did not think it was possible would be brought into the kingdom. I gave you the example of, of, of Paul. I sort of gave you the example of myself. I'll give you an example of a historical Uh, man, a man by the name of Staffordshire Bill, I write about him because Martin Lloyd-Jones writes about him in his autobiography, Uh, and if you ever get a chance, I wouldn't recommend although I read it, it's wonderful, the two volume autobiography of Martin Lloyd-Jones but there are shorter autobiographies now a particular Ian Murray's, but you need to read that They are wonderful, those uh, autobiographies of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He is such a good example. But he uh, ministered in a Welsh town by the name of Aberystwyth. And there was once a thoroughly rotten man who lived in that um, town by the name of Staffordshire Bill. He was called Staffordshire Bill because he had staffies. Staffies are the English equivalent of pit bulls and uh, particularly vicious ones. But even more vicious than his dog was the owner. Uh, He was a foul-mouthed mean-tempered brawler, a big guy, a drunk, and he said he was so mean he once killed his own dog for eating his dinner off his plate. And one night uh, he was in the pub and he heard two men speaking to one another about this new minister who had come to town, the doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Yes, said one man to the other. I was there last Sunday night. And the preacher said nobody was, oh, Welsh, nobody was hopeless. He said there was hope for everybody. Staffordshire Bill heard nothing of the rest of the conversation because in a moment he thought to himself, if there's hope for everybody, there's hope for me. I'll go to that chapel myself and see what that man says. And he, eventually he did pluck up the courage to go. And you would think that a man with a background like his would not have been interested in what the minister had to say, but it spoke to his heart. Because you remember when the gospel is being preached, it's not just words. It's not just the way they're arranged. It's not just the attempt that we make at inviting others to come to Christ. It is the effectual drawing power of the Holy Spirit. And it worked on his heart. He says he found that he could understand the things that were being said. He believed the gospel. And his heart was flooded with a new great peace. Old things had passed away. All things had become new. Now, there's a tendency after that change has occurred that we begin to, uh, well, there's a tendency we have to wonder, is the process complete? And to still think of the person as they once were. But brothers and sisters, I would encourage you not to think that way of a new creation in Christ. Think of them as who they are in Christ. Think of yourselves, and this is of critical importance, as being who you are in Christ, not who you once were. One last note about Staffordshire Bill. As he was introduced to Beth Ann Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones' wife, uh, the man who introduced him, introduced him as, this is Staffordshire Bill. Uh, And she wrote that as Beth Ann Lloyd-Jones, I shall never forget the agonized look on his face, for he flinched as though he'd been struck with a sudden blow. Oh no, oh no, he said. That's a bad old name for a bad old man. I am William Thomas now. And that's who he was because that's who God intended him to be and had intended him to be from the very beginning of time. Brothers and sisters, remember that. God is doing a work that he is intended to do from before the creation of the universe. Do you think he will turn aside? Do you think he will fail in his aims? I hope the answer that you would give in your heart to both of those questions is no. Therefore, bear with him. Be patient. Be patient. Wait on the Lord as he is doing that process in your lives and in the lives of others. We are not what we are meant to be in glory yet because we're still here. But praise God, we aren't who we were when the Lord found us. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we thank you, Lord, for that work of heart change that only you can do. We see it in the life of Judah. It is amazing, O Lord, that your forebear, Judah, after the flesh, he too needed that salvation that only you could provide. He needed the work of the Holy Spirit within him, changing him profoundly. And, O Lord, it is a wonderful thing to see how that worked. We pray, Lord, that you would do that same sanctifying work in us as well and that you would help us to be used in the sanctification of others. Help us to be patient with you as you're working on us and help us to be patient as well as you work in the lives of others.